Hey guys, before we get started, I want to remind you that we are talking about a very dark subject today. We're obviously going to talk about all sorts of abuse, but specifically child sexual abuse in a graphic manner. We're also going to talk about um, murder in a in a graphic manner. I mean, it's just, it's a lot of dark shit, guys. And if those types of things would make this a tough listen for you, then it's really important that you don't listen to this. There are other things to listen to. Go back in the catalog, go to another podcast. I don't know, go for a walk. I don't know, but take care of yourselves and I will see you guys next time. Hey guys, Princess here and welcome to another episode of By the Weekend. Um... Yeah, this is our last episode before we start season 10 of By Pumpkin, which is on Vanderpump Rules. And so we got one last palate cleanser, one last good thing to do. I'm actually talking a bit fast here because um, it's Saturday night. Uh, I didn't record this earlier like I should have. My husband is out there with those damn kids and... He was like, oh, go ahead and record your podcast. Listen, my kids are really supportive of my podcast. They don't know what the fuck I talk about on here, but they're supportive. Bunny was at school telling her little friends about how her mother goes to work and records a podcast. And then she was like, yeah, and then they just said that their mom just goes to work and they don't even podcast. And I was like, what? They don't even podcast, bro? And she was like, no. And I was like, lazy. Anyway, <laughs> I'm joking. Oh, boy. <laughs> But I'm sure somebody's mom was like, who the fuck is Princess? And why the fuck do I care about her podcast? Then like, mommy, why don't you podcast? <laughs> I don't even know if they know what a podcast is. But they're all supportive. They're like, yeah, go ahead and record your podcast while we're still up and everything. And yeah, that way you can get you can get done earlier. You can get some sleep before you have to podcast again tomorrow. Because I got to talk to Liz about some Vanderpump rules. And I was like, yeah, I'll definitely get on that. And then I started watching K-pop videos in here instead of doing what the fuck I was supposed to do. I don't know what to tell you. It's how I feel. Right now, my favorite, favorite thing to watch is Somi's um, EXO dance practice. I don't know why. I just find it incredibly mesmerizing. And then I went straight into some Blackpink and you know why. Um, because... Oh, obvious connections and uh you know I gotta round it out with some itsy <laughs> and now next thing you know I'm watching fucking old ass stages from years ago <laughs> and I'm like podcast what podcast I don't have a podcast and then I was like oh shit you gotta do this shit so let's do it um so this week I watched captive audience which is a three-part um, Julio, Hulu <laughs> documentary um, that came out this year. And listen, it. I wanted to watch it because it referenced the Steven Stainer um, abduction, which one of like the most uh, formative movies I've ever watched in my life. What's well, a miniseries, it's two parts. Uh, I know my first name is Steven is based on, okay? That's the whole reason I want to fucking watch it. That's it. Uh, I remember watching this. It came out on May of 1989. I was nine years old. No, I was eight. I was eight years old. I'm watching it with my mother because me and my mom used to do dark shit like this all the time. We loved the TV movie. My mom loved The Inquirer, loved Star, anything like that. She would read them. She would read her magazine, her her little um, tabloid magazines, put them down. Then I would get the next one and I would read them. Thought they were a fucking newspaper. 
absolutely believed everything in them. I believe a lot of shit about Michael Jackson for a really long time. I was like, he is definitely fucking that monkey. And well, that's what they said. And I thought it was a newspaper. And I thought everything in the newspaper was real, which is <laughs> sweet summer child. Anyway, <laughs> I was very young back then. And we would do shit like this. We would, um, my mom used to, my mom really loved Donald Gowen's books. Uh, like Son of a Crack Whore, or really books like that. And I didn't quite read those. I didn't quite get into those. But um, I always knew, like, I'd read the back and see what it was about. We'd go to the library together and get our stashes. Um, we'd take books uh, places. Um, famously, I'm not famous. Famously, I started reading very early. And the reason I started reading very early is my mom's a reader. But my mom refused to read to me anymore because she had things to do. Like read her own books. And she was just like, listen, I'm not reading about no fucking Chicken Little again, okay? I'm not doing it. I don't give a fuck. Uh, you have got to work this out because I can't do this with you. Because I have a book about three pimps on a road trip that I need to read right now. <laughs> and you need to go do something. And that's how I started reading. Cause I was just like, this bitch isn't gonna read to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then we would read together and we would take our books together places. And my mom was the first person that taught me to put a book in my purse at all times, because you never know when you want, when you tired of these motherfuckers to read something. And she would, my mom's like a huge partier, love to go out, love, loves to dance, loves to, say hey now loves like loves to, always invited someplace and my mom always has a book in her purse and will pull that bitch out on you in a heart, fucking heartbeat um and so like all the little dark stuff that my mom was into I was into too and including like tv movies like even now um recently in February I went home to uh you know, just see my parents, have to spend time with my kids. One of the things I did almost every night is my mom would retire to her room like she did ever since I was a small child. And back then she had a VCR, but now she has a DVR. And she would get on her bed and watch her shows. You know, it used to be Oprah, Days of Our Lives and shit like that. And now it's doubling down on Doritos and Real Housewives of Atlanta. My mother loves 90 Day Fiance. Fucking loves it. Oh, oh, do not talk to me about Darcy and fucking Stacy. There's been times my mother was like, I cannot talk to you because Darcy is doing this now and I got to go. So like, my th these are my mom's shows. Um, Married at First Sight, in which she believes that... um that Alyssa chick from this season was homeless and needed a place to stay. And so that's why she wanted to stay on the show, even though she didn't want to be married. Um, yeah, like that. So what I would do, my mom has a chaise lounge in her, in, in her room. I don't, I, she's always had like all this fucking furniture in her room. And I, she threw me a pillow and a little, and a little, um, comfy, uh, throw. And I laid back on it and we just watched the shows. And we talked about how so-and-so gives us the creeps and this and that. Like, that's what we would do most evenings, me and my mom. And yeah, the, 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 and, and this is a extension of my very young childhood. By the time I was a teenager, we were like beefing all the fucking time. I didn't want to do it. But yeah, this is what we would do together. And so I know my first name is Steven is a movie I absolutely remember watching, like appointment viewing with my mother 
because my mother had been following the case, I guess, um, that when it happened, like, like when, when the shit happened, I wasn't even born yet. Um, but my mom was like very familiar with like the abduction and stuff. And he came back in 1980. Um, I've forgotten what day I might not have been born yet. Um, and so my mom knew the case. She wanted to watch it. So we watched it together. We watched it again. When it started, it started coming on like Lifetime or something. It started coming, there, there were reruns of, I know my first name is Steven. And um, like like I said, the, the movie's formative to me. I remember when we stayed with my step-grandmother in Houston, right outside of Houston actually, uh, when I was a kid. This is right before like the really tough stuff started happening in our families, right before me and my mom were homeless together. And my grand, like my step-grandma and my mom didn't get along. You know? Of course they didn't get along. And um my mom was out doing her fucking thing and I had to stay with step grandma who we, who I didn't like. She didn't like my mom. Like, see, here's the thing about the Real Housewives of New Jersey. <laughs> Here, I'm on a tangent. Um, I recently watched the reunions uh, for this season. I, I caught, I went in and out this season and I recently watched the reunions. Like I haven't, really looked at Teresa in a really long time. And I'm watching on the Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash by pumpkin. I'm doing season four of Real Housewives of New Jersey. Guys, Teresa's obviously had a BBL, like very obviously. She still dresses terribly, but she's obviously had a BBL, obviously had a fat transfer. Um, but I know this season there was some issue with Gia and, and the rest of the Cheesecake Factory girls um, about Zio Joe not respecting their father, like talking badly about their father. And even though I believe these girls, like your father's the Antichrist, okay? <laughs> like he's the worst fucking person. He's the reason your mother went to prison. He is part of the reason your grandmother, your Nona is dead it is because of that juicy joe motherfucker that gave you half your dna okay but here's the thing i also feel bad for them because it's their father and like i would have defended my mother to the death like you guys know me and my mom we beefed a lot as and and as teenagers uh pre-teen and teenagers and like we have gotten into it and like i've had to call my mom out on her shit I still call her, like, today we were talking, we were, not today, the other day we were talking, she's in Florida at, at a beach house with her friends, and um, I was talking to her, I was like, I, s- I hear bacon, and she's like, yeah, they're making bacon and, and eggs, and so-and-so's making this and this, and I said, and what are you doing? Talking on the phone, watching them work? And she goes, yeah, and I said, this is not how you contribute. Like you don't watch other people work. You would never allow me to do that. You would have been like, if some, if other people are working, you need to organize something or pick up something to contribute to the situation. And she's like, I made the coffee. And I was like, girl, the coffee maker made a coffee. You don't make coffee. You don't literally make coffee. You got to get in there and make something. Go fold some clothes, wash a car, do something. You would, she's like, you're right, you're right, you're right. You're right. Like, why am I sitting here while other people, I was like, yeah, like, it's like you didn't even you don't even know how you raised me (laughs) so me and my mom have a complicated relationship and I can call her out on stuff from my childhood I can call her out for things that she's being ridiculous about it's not a problem and we have a a good relationship but the thing is like if you don't like my mom bitch you don't like me okay (laughs) so I don't know what to fucking tell you 
All right? You know how I, like, I talk so much shit about Candy and her mama, but I got that same fucking energy about my mama. Okay? <laughs> I'm just not on a reality TV show, and I don't plan to be on a reality TV show because I can't control my mama either. Okay? <laughs> but still. So, like... Like, my step-grandma didn't like my mom, so I was like, bitch, you don't like me then, and I don't like you. And so one night, I don't know if it was coming on, as a, I don't know how we were watching this rerun. Because movies, are, it's not like when VH won't play things, and you just watch it over and over again. I don't, I really don't understand how we were watching it. I feel like we were re-watching it on Lifetime. It was Lifetime around, this is like, fuck it, 19, it was like 1990, right? This is 90. Yeah, it's 1990. So, so it came out in 89. How are we rewatching? But it came on again. And I was like, oh, I like this movie. And she was like, you can't watch that movie. And I was like, why can't we watch this movie? Um, and she goes, it's not appropriate for kids. And I was like, okay, what? I've already seen it. And I know everything that happens in it. Like, I'm a very, very well-read child. Like, I'm up in shit. I'm also nosy. I listen to all conversations. Like, I know a lot of shit, lady. And she's like, it's not appropriate for you. You have to go to bed now. And I was like, and I never really had to go to bed. This is the summer before I started fifth grade. I never really had to go to bed there. Like, I never had bedtimes. Like, my parents didn't give me bedtimes. They gave me get the fuck out of my face times. And so, like, I'm like, it's summer. Like, why do I have to go to bed? And she's like, well, because, you know, kids need their rest. And I was like, all right, I'm about to build something tomorrow. And she's just like, I'm, I'm, I will not leave it alone. She won't leave me alone. My mom isn't there. And I just remember getting into like kind of a fight with her and like stomping off to my room to pick up one of my 18 million library books and leave the lamp on and read and like dare her to come up in there and tell me to go to bed. Like, I I think I read some age appropriate novel (laughs) until like one o'clock in the morning and then went to sleep. But I... And I, like, I talked to my mom, but I was like, why couldn't I watch that? And she's like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, like my mom, like, th- I haven't watched it in a long time. And I have strong memories of this, of this movie. And I should go and rewatch it. Because I bet you, you know how, you know, memory's a weird fucking thing. There are a lot of things I remember intensely about a movie and then I go back and I'm like that's not what the fuck happened in that movie but it was because I was a kid or whatever and I wonder if I, it would play the same way I don't know um it's a I think it's four hours of movie that's a lot of movie to be watching to make a point to be rewatching to make a point but I'm I'm very familiar with this movie I'm very familiar with like the lore of what happened and so I was interested in watching the documentary um like I said, it's three parts. Uh, each part is about an hour. And the first part really focuses on what happened, what happened in the story. And this is essentially it. On December 4th, 1972, Stephen Stainer disappeared while walking home from school. Um, his mother was supposed to pick him up from school. She was late. In the movie, it, I mean, and by the way, this doc uses so much footage from the movie. And that's fine. But like, that's not the real person. Also, the movie is not actually what happened, which is, which any person who watches like, watches TV should know. But 
so there can so we're getting interviews with actual family members with the mom with the dad's passed on with siblings um and various people and i'm like and you're interspersing this with clips from the movie and i'm like but the movie's not the movie's not what you're acting like the movie is footage from the fucking (laughs) but it's not it's not it's not even a a real reenactment because it was written it's written by a writer who and i'll get to that part but um they also had like, so they had a lot of audio interviews for that movie and, you know, and just audio of meetings between the writer and producers and where he's talking about, we have to make the movie the network wants and different things. And they had clips of the original actors in the movie reading part, reading interview stuff. And I understand it's a creative way to not have us just listening to audio clips throughout the whole entire time. But I'm like... It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. That's it. It wasn't what I thought. I thought this was going to be about, I thought this documentary was going to be a meta, a meta look at how returning from a kidnapping and having a movie made about you and being like a fig, a public figure for this changes your life. There were many twists and turns. There's a lot of shit in going. So anyway, his mother was going to go pick him up from school. And uh, he wasn't there when she got there. I guess she was late and she wasn't there. So she goes home. He's not home either. And it's about a couple hours. Keep in mind, this is 1972. It's a couple hours before they're like, okay, well, where the fuck is Steven? Because today, I would simply open my AirTag, <laughs> my find my, my, uh, find my Phone app on my phone, go to items and go to the AirTag I placed on the child. <laughs> and be like, what is their location? <laughs> But, but here, it's, in 1972, you just went where you went. Um, in 72, my mom's 12. And that might be one of the reasons she's really, that she was like, I just remember, like, she was like, you guys need to be quiet. This movie's coming on. It's very important to me. Um, so, because she was a child herself. Um, so, you know, about two hours into it, they're like, okay, well, that kid's not coming home and it's 1972, so let's give him another 16 hours. <laughs> no, they called the police and it became like this intense media uproar. Um, he was abducted by a man named Kenneth Parnell and a man named Edward Murphy, I believe, who worked with Kenneth Parnell at like an, uh, as an overnight clerk, uh, like, like an overnight clerk at a hotel is not like the person at the front desk. It's like, Someone who does the receipts and the shit in the back. I don't know. So they worked together and the two of them, Kenneth Parnell was in the car and Edward Murphy was on foot and he walked up to Stephen and asked his, would his mother like to donate to some sort of church charity? And Stephen said he thinks she would. And they said, we'll get in the car, we'll take you to her. And they obviously don't. Um, you know, the first two days they have him, they are, uh, telling him that they've called home and that his parents said it was fine for him to stay over and that his parents or and then that they and then later that they called and no one answered so just stay another night and then it turns into your because he's he wants to go home he's a child he wants to go home and he's like just call my dad he'll pick me up and i mean this is a movie but like call my parents they'll pick me up and they're like no your parents are really mad at you um, cause you haven't been home and which is like, you know, I've been trying to get fucking home, but you keep telling me we can't go home for whatever reason. And then Kenneth leaves and comes back and tells him 
that he has gone to court and gotten possession of uh, Stephen, and that his new name is Daniel, and that he's now his father, and that his parents gave him away. All things that like a seven-year-old might believe. It's possible. Um, and basically, I mean, Edward Murphy wasn't there the whole time, but basically Kenneth Parnell takes him I mean, he's going from motel to motel in Northern California. Uh, he was taken from Merced, California, which is important. Um, and he goes from motel to motel to motel. Then they're just, um, you know, it keeps him for seven years. During that time, um, uh, Kenneth Parnell sexually abuses Stephen. Um, in every way you can think about that. I don't, I'm... I don't think it's necessary for us to be that specific. Um, he takes photos of Stephen Nude, which uh, implies that he was showing them to other pedophiles um, and uh, using them to as for trade for certain things. Um, yeah, and. They moved around a lot. They, at one point, they settled in Compton, California when he was about 13 or 14 years old. Um, it's about 260 miles away from Merced. Merced is right at the mouth of Yosemite uh, National Park. Um, Compton's pretty remote. Um, it's a small town. Uh, the interviews from people that knew him then as Daniel say that, like, some of those people are like, yeah, I didn't even have access to TV except for, like, rabbit ears on a redwood tree above my house. Like, they were not... They, they, it's not like how now when someone's missing within minutes, you know, 100,000 people have seen it on fucking Twitter. It's it's not like that. And so they were pretty... That's what Kenneth Parnell was, was relying on. So, I mean, he played football. Like, he had friends. Um... The thing is, Stephen, Kenneth Parnell became his father and who also committed sexual acts against him. And like, he just had a regular life. I mean, he says that Kenneth, he says, like, I believe uh, Stephen's testimony about Kenneth Parnell, obviously, but um, he says that Kenneth beat him sometimes. He says that Kenneth, um... He really didn't know how he was going to act. Sometimes he'd be super nice to him. Sometimes he he would lock him in a room for a few days. And other times he'd let him play with a puppy for a little while. Like, he didn't know how to act. And so those those acts where he was like, sure, walk to school. I trust you. Like, that, those things um, seemed like kindness to him. Which, which, like, if you understand anything about this sort of thing, you understand why that, that was. So... To the people that knew him as Daniel Parnell and Kenneth Parnell as his dad, he just seemed like a poor kid. He only had like two pairs of pants. He never had socks. He was always filthy. Um, his shoes had holes in them. But a lot of poor people like were like that. They just, you know, he just got made fun of a bit. He was allowed to smoke. He was allowed to drive the car. He was like, when he was 13, 14 years old, he was allowed to be out as long as he wanted. But no one ever went to that house. And... There were many people who thought Kenneth Parnell was weird. Um, he didn't seem to have a lot of rules. In fact, the teacher that um, taught him when he was in Compte, because they were there quite a bit, was like, I wish that I had seen that something was off, but I didn't. 
And although, like, uh, the, obviously we don't blame that teacher, right? Like, like it's not her fault she did not realize that he was a a missing child. Um, but I know, by the way she said that, that, like, she blames herself. Like, she she never forgot that she didn't, she didn't catch that something was, else was going on. Um, that he was a missing child, he'd been abducted, he was, he was being sexually abused. Like, she didn't, she, that, it was hard for her. Um, there were some signs. The kids that he did hang out with, they, they, like, they were talking about how they had full run of Compte and their parents didn't look for them. Yeah, it was, like, 1979. And they would be, like, drinking and smoking. And sometimes, one time he got really drunk and said that he really wanted to go home. And they were like, well, your house is right over there. And they are like, no, my real home. Um... At one point he mentioned, <laughs> I'm thinking about that because I would have not let that go because I'm such a nosy fucking person. I would never let, I've been like, no, what is your real home? Like, what are you talking about? I, I have a friend who, um, an acquaintance of ours, a good friend of her, but an acquaintance of ours. Um, they were drinking one day at, the, at her house and like, pissy fucking drunk which is why I wasn't there right? I don't drink like that um I drink fufu drinks at Chili's right I drink the margarita of the month at Chili's that's what I drink I I've I have <laughs> the idea of me going to a liquor store is ludicrous like but they were like drinking all night and they were like pissy drunk and my friend says that our acquaintance turned to her late in the night and said I once killed a man with my car And my friend go, and so obviously the next thing I said is like, okay, what the fuck? And she goes, I didn't say anything. I didn't ask her anything about it. I was like, are you crazy? I would have had all the details. I'm like, okay, so start at the beginning. What kind of car was it? How old were you? What street was it? Mm-hmm. What was the weather like? Like, I would because I just don't let shit like that go. I'm just such a nose, nosy person. And like, <laughs> And then my friend was like, you can't ask her about it. I was like, bullshit, I can't ask her about it. I can't. But then she was like, don't, 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 don't. Because I think she was just really drunk. I was like, I don't think she was really drunk. I think she killed somebody. And there might be a reward. (laughs) But anyway, uh, they did let it go. At another point, his mom, they were talking about Christmas or something. And someone had asked if he'd gotten some presents. And he says his mom doesn't care about him. And they were like, oh, you can, they were trying to encourage her. They were like getting up their little coins to use the pay phone to call him, her. And Steven said he didn't know the number. Like little stuff like that actually happened. And, you know, and like I said, some people saw Parnell was weird as fuck. And what happened there is Steven got like a little too close to people. He, like he had friends. He, he had girlfriend. He, he he had a life and Parnell moves him to uh, Point Arena, another little town into a one room shack that's like off by itself because, you know, the more Stephen, more time Stephen spends with other people, the more likely you're going to get caught. Um, I want to emphasize that Stephen was left alone many, many times. He had opportunities to escape, but did not. And there are for a number of reasons. The first being that he did not know where he was. 
Um, especially first when he was younger, he didn't know where he was. He didn't know how to get back. He didn't know where he needed to get back to. I find it interesting. He didn't know what town he lived in. Um, but okay. I, he's seven, but I, I find it interesting. He doesn't know what, like, I'm not, like, I'm not here to fucking Monday morning quarterback a fucking seven-year-old, an abducted, scared seven-year-old. But I'm saying that like, what he was saying is that he didn't really know where he was or how to get to his family. As time went on, he'd been told so many things about his family that he was worried that they were mad at him and things had changed. And it's like, better the devil you do know. And also Kenneth played head games with him. And he began to think of Kenneth as a father figure. Um, you know, so meanwhile, back at Steven's family's home. I'm not gonna use bio family. Like, I know that that one chick, what's her name? Kamaya Mobley. I know that Kamaya Mobley is a uh, fascinating case of someone who's abducted from a hospital at birth um, and considers the person who abducted her to be her mother. And that is her family. And she had a disastrous episode on Yama, which is really, which really brings up the ethics of Yama. But like when she, when it was found out that she was this abducted baby, like she's like, fuck that. This is my family. This is that, this is my mother. This is the, her mother died, I guess. Um, I want to say, did her mother die like in the, oh no, she didn't die. She was arrested and like, she's still, Kamaya's like trying to get her early release even now in 2022. Um, but I'm like, even though I'm used to using uh, terms like bio family, adoptive family, foster family, I'm not gonna use that in this term because like this is a fucking kidnapping. So Steven's family, like Car- Kenneth Parnell is not Steven's family. I I understand that as he explains that he came to know him, think of him as his father and, they, and tell people who like feel like he had father, but no, I'm not doing that. I, I try to use those other terms to be respectful of people's like um, relationships, but I I shouldn't even have to explain this. This is like not a time when I need to do that. Um, so back at Steven's family's house, um, he has four siblings, three sisters and a, and a brother named Carrie, which is important. And his parents are pretty much haunted by Steven's abduction, particularly his father is very emotional. He was breaking down. He was crying a lot in interviews and, it, it was, this was devastating to him. And his mother really held the family together. Even in the interviews from current, from 2022, his mother, even when you go back and look at old footage of like interview news interviews, his mother is a tough bitch. I don't know. She just seems like a, like she don't take no shit. And like at one point they wanted to talk about something very, um, about Carrie. And she's like, no, no. And they were like, well, we just wanted to ask. She's like, you're clear. You got it. No, <laughs> like she, I, um, they even talked about when they were doing the movie, how they needed to soften her up for the thing, because she's a very stoic person. And it's not that you didn't think she missed her son, but like you wanted the audience to really feel her. And if you put her on the screen the way that she was, uh, um, it's possible that the audience wouldn't have like, felt with her and and remember audiences are are like hardcore women they just are and they expect certain things for them in certain in certain ways to act and if 
the mom had been the dad, things had been switched. The mom was crying all the time and like in shambles and couldn't get out of bed and stuff. And the mom and the dad was walking around just like stoically making dinners and going to work and doing shit like that. No one would question it. Um, but she kept that family together during this seven years. Seven years is a really long time, guys. I was thinking about how Turtle was six when I met him. Um, the day he showed up at my house, he was six and he'll be 12 in July. And how different he is. How different he is. Um, just the other day I was looking at him and we were talking and stuff and I was like, he projects his voice a lot more than he used to. He used to like, uh, he's been tested so many times for speech, uh, delay, but he doesn't have speech delay. He mumbles. It has, he can pronounce the words. He can, he understand, he, it's not, it's, it's not an inability to, he will not because he mumbles and he's like, kind of like grown out of that a bit. Like I, I can see if we give it another year, I won't, I won't ever be like, speak up or like, you have to say that again. Um, I remember we were in a speech therapy thing, um, a testing thing. And I'm off on the side in the corner because I'm not participating in the, in the testing. And like, also I don't want to even like make him nervous and make him think that I'm like paying attention to it. So I'm reading a book and I'm like not even looking at them. And she's asking him to describe pictures and um, a crown comes up and he goes, my mom. And she's like, what? And he's like, this is my mom. And he's like going on about me and stuff. And I'm trying hard not to laugh because she's like, what the fuck? <laughs> and he, he, he finally, after like saying some other words that like free associated that all have to do with me. And he goes, my mom's name is princess. <laughs> and, he, and she goes, oh, okay. <laughs> but I just thought it was, I, I don't know. I, I had to hide my life. Anyway, um, the how much he's changed since he was six years old is immensely seven years is a really long time I mean it's only six years but still can't imagine not seeing a child for seven years that young and them showing back up so during that time they tried to keep like the case you know like people assume he's dead right wouldn't you assume he was dead if he was gone for seven years I, I, and that's they really just had to like keep moving keep pushing so back at Parnell's place. According to Steven, Parnell tried, I'm looking at my notes. It says adopt, but I wrote abduct and I fuck you fucking, um, um, fucking autocorrect. Parnell tried several times to abduct other little boys. Um, he had a, they keep calling her a mistress, but I'm like, Parnell wasn't married. What the fuck? Um, but whatever, he had a woman that he often spent time with and she lived on and off with, with him and Steven. And she tried to help him abduct someone, a little boy one time. He would try to make Steven do it. And Steven would say like, you know, he would mess up on purpose. And Parnell would yell at him and sometimes beat him. And he's like, he just got old enough that he was like, I'm not going to do it. And, and he didn't really say anything about it. But what happens is one day, Parnell, it's Valentine's Day, uh, 1980. 
And Parnell brings home five-year-old Timmy White. He's abducted him with the help of another young man who, I'm, I'm not sure what his what his connection was to, to Kenneth. And he's like, this is your little brother. We're expanding the family. And this is the last straw for Stephen. Uh, about two weeks later, he... It's uh, according to lore. I, I don't know how true this is because the people that are retelling this are Stephen's children. And keep in mind, they've been told the story over and over and over again by different people. And, you know, this was a media sensationalized thing. So, so some of this stuff is to be taken with a grain of salt because it makes it a better story to hear that it was a dark and rainy and stormy night. And Kenneth Parnell goes to his job. It's an overnight, it's an overnight hotel auditor, whatever the fuck he is. He's the thing in the back that they're doing the receipts and shit. And he, Stephen decides to take Timmy home. Uh, Timmy was taken from Ukiah, California. And it's about 39 miles from where they were living at the time. And so he's got a hitchhike. They were originally going to try to walk, but it's rainy and it's dark and everything. And they hitchhike, they get picked up. Um, and Steven just assumes that like the best way to do this is to like, he got, he says he got, he got picked up by a guy and, and they just got in the car again. It's 1980 people. Apparently people did this shit. And Tim, Timmy sat on his lap the whole way to Ukiah. And when they got there, they went to a police station and it took a while for them like to figure out like what the fuck was happening. And what the police discovered is that Timmy was a recently abducted child about two weeks and that Steven was a not so recently abducted child. And in the movie, he says, I know my first name is Steven, which is why it's called that because he doesn't remember his last name. He put he has divided a lot of things in his life because he doesn't want. I don't know, it's painful to think of his family. Um, and so he doesn't remember what his last name was. He's been lying for so long. Guys, the night they found Stephen, so this is March 1st, 1980. The night they found Stephen, they put him on TV before even taking him to his parents. He's 14, about to be 15. And they got the news crews there. Then they got the news crews going over to their house. They just call, they just go over to his parents' house and be like, yeah, we found him. Yeah, your son has been missing for seven years. No, 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 you can't get him now. And they're working it out at the police station. When they, when they take him back to his parents, there are like hundreds of people on the street, news vans, TV crew, like it, it, the police car can't even get through the crowd to take him. It was like Lindsay Lohan leaving the club in the early aughts. Just like flashes of light and you could just like, like somebody's gonna get killed. You know what I mean? And you know, uh, they, you, there's footage of his first like hug with his, with his mother and father and siblings. There's footage of his first like laying eyes on them. Maybe they talked on the phone, but I don't think so. The way they talked about it. They really were like, no, 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 let's get him on the news first. And let's, let's get him an interview first. He, and so 
that's where it started. Nonstop interviews, press conferences, talk shows. There's constant, there's so much footage of Steven in the next two years from that. People were, they, they sent him to school like, like the next week. They just sent him on to school and like news reporters showing up at school, like in the school. Guys, I have never had a child in school. Yeah. I, I do not remember when I was in school that you could get in and out of, no, you could get in and out of, like in high school, you could get in and out of doors. We had like a school shooting at our fucking school. Um, but at my kid's school, you cannot get into that school. There, you have to go to the front. You have to be buzzed in. I've also done some like uh, ri- teaching of writing, like writing classes to like uh, elementary schools. And yeah, other cl- other schools I've been to, you have to be buzzed in. You cannot get into a school. Uh, you can get out. Because uh, I think it's a fire hazard not to allow you to those doors to open from the inside. But you couldn't go to an outside. You need help to get in. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I'm just saying like you have to be buzzed in and the way those school, most of the schools I've been to at this point have, um, the office is usually in a chamber, like right at the front door and you, the, so when you get buzzed, so before COVID, you could actually even open the doors, right? But you, it would leave you to a lobby. You have no choice but to go into the office because the doors to go into the school are locked and you go into the office, you check in or whatever you're going to do and they hit the buzzer. You can go in. Um, now mid pandemic, as I like to call us, uh, you can't even get in. You have to, you got to be buzzed in. Uh, they'll let me in to my kid's school right now, but I don't like going in there because I don't like to be around breathing people. So, um, I'm just like, could you give this to the nurse? <laughs> They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but in 1980, like you just get on campus. I, I, so when I first put the boys in school, I was so surprised that I got a text alert when the school went on lockdown because the school went on lockdown many times and it would go on lockdown if an adult appeared on the uh, playground, they would put all the children inside and lock the fucking school down. That means no in and out to anybody. Uh, station people at the doors, all that shit. Uh, at the, at the back, the, the doors that you can push open to get out, they would station people there to keep you from going in and out. Um, they would, uh, they would text. They'd be like, this school is in lockdown, uh, at this time. We will let you know when it's not. And we'll, we're assessing the situation. And then I get a text later. It was a dog in the parking lot. So we decided to put the school on lockdown. They, they were locked down for any fucking reason. Um, the first time I was like, somebody's shooting my kid's school. But no, 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 no. That, but, but security, obviously we know why schools have so, such security now. Back then you could just go. There is footage of them just following him to shop class. They are on the news talking about his, his faces on the news. I don't think now that they would put his face on the news, like his current face. They would run this story with that old picture of him as being seven. On the the, the newscast that day, there would just be, they would name his school, what his classes were there, like his last class of the day is Woodshop. And like, <laughs> this is like, 
things that I find super scary right now. Now, obviously this is national news. So there's, it's, it's, it's really intense locally. And then national news stories pick it up. But like today it would be no issue for someone to find out what school Steven had returned to and like show up there from 600 miles away. Like, fucking drive a car all the way there just to be like, Steven, I had a dream about you. That's the type of shit people do. Um, I had a dream. God told me to kill you. Like, shit like that. But they're just, his mom is like, stop going to the school. And then, so now they're just outside the school filming. Steven's mom says he, she doesn't want him to be interviewed anymore. Right behind me, he's going to English class. It was really fucked up. But I don't want it to be like, I don't want it to be like Steven, like his family was running from the stuff. It wasn't that. They did do press conferences. They did do interviews. They were so happy to have him back. And they, he was becoming like kind of like a known, a celebrity in a way. Um, he got a $15,000 reward for returning Timmy. There was a the reward for Timmy. He was considered a hero for Enduring all that for seven years, but once Timmy was involved, being like, no, I, we've got to go. I've got to do something about it. You know, girls were all over him. People were getting like really jealous of all the attention. He was, it was nonstop, intense attention. I cannot even imagine it. I cannot imagine it. And then some details started to come out. When Stephen had first gotten back, the, the, the story, the, the story had always been that Parnell told police that he just won a family. He was, only, he was a lonely bachelor. He just won a family. And that's why he stole the little boys. And Stephen kind of let it be like that. Um, he did not talk about the sexual abuse. In fact, um, his family didn't really want him to. It's unclear whether or not they knew the extent of like the sexual abuse before. But what happens is that they find photos of nude Stephen. And they have him come down to the police and they're like explain these and that's when it comes out that he was sexually assaulted um over and over again and you know the thing about it like I said the 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 media in this case is like there's so many interviews of things that should not have been made public like obvious like listen this is a very it's a very like public thing going on but people are on the the courthouse steps being like there have been photos found I have not seen the photos the photos the photos I've been told the photos imply a new child like like <laughs> I feel like now they would have really kept that out of the press they would have been like we're not going to talk about like this isn't something we're going to put in the press well it'll come out at court it'll definitely come out at court but it wouldn't have been like Oh, someone's like, somebody call NBC and let them know, you know? And once that gets out, Todd really turns on Steven because now he's being called the F-slur everywhere he goes. Uh, people are, as if it, as if this is something that is, well, first of all, obviously the F-slur isn't okay, but the people are, People are acting as if him being molested is something he wanted and he wanted it because he was gay. Like that's, that's, that's the story. People are bullying him at school. There's a lot of like, 
in the movie, it's depicted as someone being like, what's wrong, Steven? You forget your purse? Like, shit like that. Um, there is a interview uh, from the principal that's like, we have a lot of fine kids here. And maybe now, Steven won't have a lot of, all the girls chase him. He'll have to get used to that. But other than that, it'll be fine. And I'm like, oh my God. Um, and also, before the photos came out, it was already, because Steven would talk about like what his life was like. And, you know, like I said, he played football. He had friends sometimes. Every now and then he got to play with a puppy or something like that. He was allowed to smoke and drink. And so, you know how people are. They want to find fault with your story. And they want to assume that if something like this happened, you are in constant terror and constant, like, misery at all times. But seven years is a long time. And he, and like, the fact that Steven didn't, every memory was not attached to a trauma was really like puzzling to people. They were like, oh, it seems like he was having a good time. And then it find, then they find out that he'd been, um, it comes out he'd been molested and, and, and um, then they're like, oh, he was having a good time. And he, you know what I mean? Like, it's just the grossest shit. Um, there's no therapy for him. Of course, because his father didn't want him to go. And back, it's 1980. And like I said, they put him in back in the school days of him returning. Um, they didn't want him to talk too much about his experiences. And as for him, and like, this is led by him. He didn't want to go to therapy. And he said he didn't want to focus on bad experience. He only wanted to talk about good experience. But he was 14. Like One of the things his mother says in an interview way back, like, um, she's like, He's, you know, he was seven when he was gone, when he left, when he was taken, he's almost a man now. And I was like, there's no fucking way I'd ever say a 14 year old's almost a man, but it's also not 1980. You know what I mean? So like, but it's just, he's almost a man. He's practically a man. I'm like, no, he's not. But like in his family's defense, Stephen was not interested in that sort of thing. He really just wanted it to go away. And I think that in 2022, we would know that something like that, maybe you can push it on the rug. Maybe you can put it to the back of your mind and never think about it again, but don't think it's going to stay back there. It's going to come out where you least expect it, you know? Like now we'd be like, no, no, you have to. You have to talk to someone about this, even reluctantly. Um, but back then they were just like, no, it's fine. He has to testify in both cases, Timmy's case and his case, they're separate cases. And it was painful for him. He didn't want to do it. He says he fought it in his recording. It says he fought it the entire way. I was listening to a Dateline episode. I'm still listening to Dateline episodes, by the way. Um, and one, the podcast thing, like I said, it is so much fucking content. It is, and and it shouldn't be, but it's incredibly soothing. Um, Because it's a structure to it and the voices and stuff. Um... I hate when I get a Lester Holt episode. Lester Holt is so fucking smug in his interviews. Keep in mind, I'm not watching. I'm listening. Um, and even when I, like, if I were to watch Dateline, it'd be on the way to sleep. So I wouldn't, I still wouldn't be looking at it. I'd be listening to it. Um, he's like, I've been told that's often the husband. And I'm like, Lester, <laughs> you've, been, you've been hosting Dateline for 85 years. Don't play smug with us. <laughs> like, shut up, Lester. I hate that. 
surprising it's surprising what women are attracted to huh and i'm like shut up lester <laughs> hate fucking lester anyway i was listening to a dateline episode where a witness was the child of the victim. He was a teenager and he was like so dead set on not testifying. Not because he believed in the the guy's innocence. It was his stepfather and he believed his stepfather killed her. He'd seen so much abuse and everything. He just did not want to testify. And they had to arrest him and take him to the court because he refused to go. Um, And I'm just thinking about how like the fact that they arrested him, but they had to like that, like he got arrested on a witness warrant. And I'm just thinking about like how they would absolutely arrest Steven if he didn't want to testify in those cases. Um, it was very painful for him guys. Uh, in the end, Parnell gets seven years for Timmy, which, which is the max. Okay. Then he gets, then this trial's for Steven. He gets the max in Steven's case too. But because of the way the statute is, he only has to serve 20 months, uh, which is a little less than two years of the sentencing. So he gets about nine years total and he only does five. I, th I think, let me check my notes again. Pretty sure he only does five. Yeah, he does five and he's let out. And just so you know, just so we can wrap up the Ken Parnell part of it. Uh, so this all happened in 1980, right? Um, in 2004, he's 71 years old. He is, he's had a stroke. He has several, he has several like, I think it's, he's got complications from diabetes. He's 71 years old. He needs full-time care. This man attempted to purchase a child. I want to say that again. Purchase a child from his, the sister of his caregiver. He was trying to pay for $500. He requested the child have a, have a clean rectum. He in his home, like, so there's no particular child involved because he was, she, I guess he'd had several conversations with the, with his, the sister of his caregiver, his full-time caregiver. Um, and she turned him in. Thank motherfucking God. And so there's no particular specific child involved in this, but based on the fact that when they went to his home, he had, um, child sexual assault materials. He had, um, they called it sexual AIDS. I, I don't want it. He had things in his home, in his apartment in Berkeley that the prosecutor was able to establish, like to establish intent. And so he gets 25 years of life and he gets that because of the third strike rule, because prior to, hmm, now, they said that prior to uh, to abducting Steven, he had served time for a kidnapping. I'm not sure because I would assume that Timmy's, if that had happened, if he'd served time for that, Timmy's would be number two and Steven's would be number three and he'd get his life in prison, right? So it makes more sense that Timmy's was his first one. Steven was the second one. And this was his third conviction. And that's, he got 
he got uh, life based on, or 25 to life based on his, uh, on that third conviction. This is, I don't know. This is, I, that's where Kenneth Parker, he died in prison of natural causes. As for Steven, he had to go home and grow up. He's 14. They, he dealt with a lot of bullying at school. He dealt with his family having to reform around him because they had formed some sort of like fragile thing. Like, think about it like this. So when Steven is taken, his family structure is a vase, like a, a, a glass vase is broken. And over those seven years, they are trying to glue the pieces back together, right? To form something. And, you know, once broken, even if you glue it back together perfectly, you still like, it's not as strong as it used to be. And then Steven returns and breaks it again. And it's not that, it just changes everything. And, you know, everyone had a hard time dealing with it, especially his brother, Carrie. Um... According to Steve, according to his sister, Stephen drank quite a bit, although he didn't love it, but he did it. He drank quite a bit. He smoked a lot of weed. He did PCP and black beauties. I mean, he was out here in these streets. He wrecked a couple of cars. His mother says that like the, the next four to five years were really tough. Um, she said he was a rabble rouser. It was just, he was, keep in mind, he was a man. Like, like I just made fun of her calling him like almost a man, but in Stephen's viewpoint he had been running around like an adult for a long time even though he was with Carnell he was with Parnell he'd been like Parnell allowed him to do whatever and now he's back in this environment where people are like listen would you mind taking a bath sometimes like because you're really dirty and he's like don't tell me what to fucking do and I don't know it's tough there's a long line of women in and out and he ends up marrying a woman named Jody he gets her pregnant um, with, uh, their daughter, Ashley, then, um, they get married. She's 17 when they get married. So, and I'm assuming he's like 18 or 19 or so. I'm assuming. Then they have a son, Steven Jr. He's got a little family at this point. So by the time the movie's made, it's a late eighties. It comes out in 89. He's like 22 or 23 years old. Um, his mother was like, no to the movie, but it's Steven's story. And so, and he said, yes, he, she said he had a family. He wanted the money. He also wanted a motorcycle. So he does it. And the movie's writer comes down and interviews as many people as fucking possible. All these audio, um, recordings of everyone. And especially Steven, he's hearing stuff for the first time, stuff that didn't come out in court. Um, that said, the movie took poetic license with a lot of things. Uh, Steven didn't meet Jody till she till he was out of high school, and he met her at work. And they have her meeting him at school and defending him against bullies. Uh, his mother said they were never as poor as the, they were portrayed in the in the uh, movie, and I believe that because if you have them like struggling to make ends meet and shit like that, it's again more sympathetic, more sympathetic. Um, they also said the father wasn't as bad as he was shown in the movie in terms of like crying all the time and like basically being unable to function. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I just didn't expect the movie to be like spot on, I guess. 
So it never like bothered me. Like when they were saying this, I was like, yeah, of course it's not. Cause you have to make a fucking movie. And like not every part of this is like a movie. Um, the movie's got monster ratings for the time. They said it was like the, if the Super Bowl, Super Bowl style ratings. Um, it came out May 22nd and 23rd of 1989. It starred Corky Nimick um, as Steven in most of the movie. Corky Nimick was the star of Parker, Lew- Parker Lewis Can't Lose. In fact, he did it a year after this. And Parker Lewis Can't Lose is one of those shows. During my Ask Me Anything for the Patreon, one, uh, someone asked me, are there any movies or TV shows that are like feel like fever dreams because it feels like I'm the only person who watched it? That's one of them. Parker Lewis can't lose. But Corky Nimick did a lot of shit. Corky Nimick was on Webster. Another Fever Dream episode where Webster is the story of the son of a professional football player who dies. His mother and father die. He's a black guy. And they leave their son to George Papadopoulos and his wife, Catherine. And who he used to play football with and he's now like an announcer or whatever. And they are now tasked with raising this little black boy. By the way, uh, Emmanuel Lewis, who plays Webster, was like 32 the whole time. No, um, what does Emmanuel Lewis? I want to say Emmanuel Lewis is a little person, but I could be wrong. Let me just, Emmanuel Lewis. He called, like, his friends call him Manny. Um, I remember that from this real life. Um, he's still alive. He was born in 71. Um, da, 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 he's born in Brooklyn. Oh, he plays Taekwondo. I mean, not plays, he didn't do Taekwondo. His height has only changed six inches since his childhood, making him relatively short. Oh, he has no known condition that would explain his height. He's just a small person. Not a little person, which is what someone who has dwarfism, the various types of dwarfism would be called, but he's just a small person. He, he doesn't, there is no, there, he doesn't have any conditions. Um, what's the other one's name? I'm sorry. That was like really insensitive. I said the other one. <sighs> Different strokes. <laughs> he... Different Strokes, an American sitcom. Oh, there was also an erotic movie called Different Strokes. Of course there was. Uh, (laughs) Gary Coleman, who's been in a lot of fucking trouble. Oh, he died in 2010. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. He is regarded as one of the greatest child actors of all time. Sure. And the highest paid adolescent on television throughout the late 70s and 80s. Huh. Huh. Interesting. Um, okay. So I always thought both Emmanuel Lewis and Gary Coleman were little people. That is not fucking true. Emmanuel Lewis has never been diagnosed with anything. Um, there's no known medical reason for his shortness. Um, but Gary Coleman had focal segmental something I can't pronounce. It's called FSGS. And it's a kidney disease that 
due to the medicines and think that and the medicines needed to treat it he his he his growth was limited and he had a childlike face now here's the thing about webster um, manny lewis and gary coleman is that because they were see the thing about child stars is you want them to look young but be older because that they can play parts but they can actually learn lines and, and be useful on set you know Working with babies on set is apparently terrible. I can imagine. I, I don't know. Babies babies will fuck you up every time. But because of these two, how young they look, they were able to make a lot of money as child actors because they could memorize lines. And, you know, some of those Webster episodes, Jesus, <laughs> they're like heavy. And, you know, Manny's doing his thing. But why am I talking about Webster? <laughs> Quirky Nimmit was on Webster. He was on Webster a lot. And that's, an, like I said, another Fever Dream episode show that I used to watch all the fucking time. Um, that time he got that chemistry set and burnt down the fucking house. Uh, and then, like, they just never really uh, addressed the fact that, like, uh, y'all just got this little black boy. <laughs> I mean, they did. It was mostly in jokes. But, yeah, like... That's interesting. And Webster and Gary and Manny Lewis and um and uh Gary Coleman will always be tied to me because they were both small people, not little people, small people on um sitcoms about living with white people, black boys living with white people. Uh so yeah, let me stop talking about this. <laughs> let me fucking stop talking about this. Um he was in the stand, like quirky Nimic. He was in a lot of shit. Uh, so here's the thing. The movie does well. Like I said, it does really well. It gets nominated for four Emmys. And the night before the Emmys, Steven Stainer dies in a car accident. He's on a motorcycle and he gets hit by a drunk driver. His kids are very small. They're like three and two, I think. Maybe three and one. And he leaves a widow. A widow. Okay, so let's talk about Carrie. In February 1999, three women went missing in Yosemite Park. And I want to say their names because the thing about, like, I know people are being more uh, conscious about their their consumption of true crime content. Guys, I have been consuming true crime, like I said, since I was a wee babe next to my mama. All right, this is what my mama loved. This is what I used to watch America's Most Wanted religiously. I used to be looking for those motherfuckers on the street. I used, like, and we're big mystery fans. Love a cozy mystery. A cozy mystery. Those Aurora Tea Garden mysteries. Love them. Love them. Can't watch the series adaption, the movies on Hallmark because fucking Candace Cameron's in them. And I fucking hate that bitch cater face so like but like i love a cozy mystery um the southern vampire uh novels which are what true blood's based on are also written by charlene harris who wrote the aurora tea garden cozy mysteries love them i i i i I love a fucking mystery and like i'm not gonna stop consuming true crime content and that includes like law and orders and things like that I'm not going to I'm not even gonna pretend like I am even though it's like absolute copaganda psych is copaganda um yeah like uh, a lot of the shit I love the mentalist 
elementary favorite fucking show in the world, Copaganda. And, but here's the deal. I don't just watch Copaganda. I also watch The Wire. I also watched, what's that? What's that thing where the guy was a spy and he got burned? Burn Notice. I also watched Burn Notice. I also watched The Sopranos. And I'm technically against doing crimes too, but I watch it all. It's, it's what it is. And I enjoy this stuff. But, and I enjoy talking about documentaries like this, but if we're going to do it, there are some things I want to be clear, like to try to, to, to be as ethical as possible. I mean, ethical consumption is really hard of anything, but I am, one thing we need to make sure we do is say the victims' names. Like, let's start off with making sure we name victims, not the women, not those girls, nothing like that. What is that person's name? And also when we talk about trials, we don't call a trial the victim's name trial. It's not Ahmaud Aubrey's trial. It's a trial of those racist fucks that killed him. You know, like it's language around things is really important. And so I want to make sure I say these, uh, these women's names correctly. Um, there are three women. It's Carol Sund. I hope I'm saying the name correctly. And Julie's son, uh, Carol's the mother. Julie's her teenage daughter. They also have a family friend with them that I guess is from Brazil. I'm my, an Argentine exchange student. Her name is Sylvania Peloso. Um, and they are sightseeing in Yosemite and um, staying at the Cedar Lodge, which becomes important. And they disappear from the park. The park is right on the outskirts of Merced, which is the city in which all this starts and when Stephen is abducted. This was really big news. Like, the thing is, Yosemite's so big, it's such a it's such an attraction. Like, in this area, everyone's been to Yosemite for a day. Everyone's driven in and, 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 and hiked and gone to waterfall and done all these things. It feels very personal that these three women are missing. Um, it's... All, it's all the local news and it's on the 24 hour news. It's on hard copy. Larry King's talking about it. Like it is a huge news story that these women are gone and people don't feel safe. Like, um, Ashley, I believe her name. Let me make sure. Um, Ashley, Ashley, Steven's daughter is talking about being like 12 years old and this being like getting home from school and this being the first thing on the six o'clock news. All anyone talked about at school, like people were really worried about this. Eventually what happens is they find the rental car that they had burnt out with, with two bodies in the truck. And this is Carol and Sylvania. Um, in this, in, in the trunk. And this really ramps up the search for Julie because she's not there with them. And maybe she's still alive. You know, maybe someone's kidnapped her. Like people have, they really want to find her at this point. Um, but she's not there with them. Shortly after that, because the FBI is involved in this, Yosemite Park is apparently federal land. That makes sense. It's a national park right? The FBI is involved in this. So the FBI gets a letter that at the top says we had fun with this one and then has a hand-drawn map of um, where to find Julie's body. And they do. 
You know, again, this is a huge fucking uproar. The FBI starts, FBI starts rounding up anybody with any kind of criminal history that will relate to this uh, rape, uh, a kidnapping, um, an assault. Of, and it's essentially telling everyone, listen, it's safe. We've got every person. It's one of these guys. Don't worry. It's safe. It's safe. It's safe. Uh, we know what happened to them, and, and we've got the people. So this happens in February of 1999. Was it February? Let me make sure. Yeah, February 1999. In July of 1999. Oh, and it had been about six weeks for them to find the body. So, so you're in the middle of March at this point. Middle, end of March, somewhere in there. In July of 1999, Joy Armstrong was found. She's a, a naturalist. So she lived in the area because that's where Yosemite was. Um um she's described as very carefree and very like loved and like you know just never met a stranger and like like there is no motive for for a person to hurt her right um and she's found in the stream in the back of behind her place decapitated And what happened was there was a sighting of a car around her place. It was a powder blue 1972 International Scout. I don't even know what the fuck that looks like. I'm going to look that up right fucking now. What the fuck does an International Scout? A 1972 International Scout. Keep in mind, this is 1999. Um. Oh, wow. Okay, okay, okay. This... I don't know what I thought. <laughs> I don't know what I thought this car was going to look like. But this car makes a lot more motherfucking sense. And it's powder blue. Okay. So here's the thing though. It's kind of like a lifted car. It looks like a it looks like a tank to be honest. But it looks like the type of thing you would drive around Yosemite. Um, but it's an unusual car. And people have known this to be Carrie Strainer's car. Stainer's car. And also... Like local people are like, that's Carrie Stainer's car. And also Carrie Stainer works at the lodge that the three women had been staying in. By the way, I didn't mention this. Julie was found, when they found her, she was wrapped in a blue, a pink blanket that was traced back to the lodge. So they go and look at Carrie. They find evidence. They didn't say what evidence, but they found some evidence in the car that tied him to Joy's murder. They arrest him. Like the FBI originally was not even looking at him, but because he didn't have a criminal record at all. In fact, he had been arrested for weed and meth, but the charges had been dropped. He didn't have, and that's not even the type of criminal record they were looking for. They were looking for a criminal record with um, assaulting people and those types of crimes. So he hadn't been looked at. He'd been interviewed though. Everyone at the, every employee at the lodge had been interviewed and he hadn't had like a, he, he was, didn't seem nervous at all during the thing. So they arrest him. And as it comes out that he's been arrested, um, a reporter goes down to where he, to the jailhouse to speak to him. I don't, I didn't catch this guy's name. I don't want to catch his name. He's, it, he's not a bad, I don't know if he's a bad person or not, but he's a host on court TV. He's been an investigative journalist for a long time. They actually have on camera them asking him to stop using his investigative journalist. I'm on court TV voice. 
because they're trying to do a more casual documentary. And I was like, I understand because he really did sound like he, he was like behind a desk commentating on a case. Um, but I don't care about his name. Okay. So the reporter goes down to uh, the courthouse thinking he just got arrested. He doesn't have, he'd been reporting on this for a minute. This guy probably doesn't have a lawyer yet. And he's not a lawyer to say no to. So he goes down and he asks, can he speak to Carrie? And Carrie says, yes. And they let him in there to speak to him, but he can't bring recording devices. So all he has is little notes from that day. And according to him, Carrie says to him, I'll tell you, but I want a TV movie. I want you to talk to the, to the LA producers or whoever and get me a TV movie. And the reporter is like, yeah, I'll see what I can do. This, this is a lie. I mean, I'll see what I do can do is not a lie, but like you have no intention of that sort of thing, but okay. And it's interesting because that's, Steven got a TV movie. He got money from that TV movie. Um, he'd been held a hero. Like keep in mind that TV movie came almost 10 years after he came back and it brought up the story again. <clears throat> and now people are talking about Steven as a hero again. Um, but it's 1999 and, and like there are like, it's more likely that you'll be on a Lifetime movie than you will be on a TV movie, but still. And so the reporter says that once he goes, yeah, I'll see what I can do. Carrie takes a deep breath and admits to killing Joy and then admits to killing the three women. And in a matter of fact voice, as if it doesn't matter, as if it... As if he's telling you his order at a diner. And at this point, killing four people, especially four, <sighs> killing four people makes you a serial killer, especially four strangers, right? So if you kill four people over drug beef in your drug business, it's not the same as if you randomly pick out people and kill them for no reason. Carrie is the definition of a serial killer. In fact, when you look him up on Wikipedia, it says American serial killer. I, I you know, I'll, let me move on. Um, there's video footage of him taking the police to Joy's house and uh, showing them how he strangled and killed her. Very nonchalantly in his shorts and t-shirt. Uh... You know, this is big news. Like I said, he's a serial killer, but also he is the brother of a local hero. Like I said, Stephen was considered a hero for bringing Timmy back and for um, surviving the boy who lived. That's, that's, that was Stephen for a really long time. And suddenly the, the stories are not just Carrie Strainer, Stainer is a serial killer. We found the guy who killed all those, those women those four women and within months of each other and over at Yosemite, get this, he's Steven Stainer's brother. And that really upset his kids, you know, because again, they, they don't really know their father and for right or wrong, for better or for worse, he is a larger than life figure to them. And like they were listening to, some of the audio of him talking about it and 
his daughter was like moved because she's heard this story over and over again, but not from her father. Her father died when she was little. And so it's really upsetting to have his name brought up in his, he died young, you know, and his, all this brought up in the same mouthful is look at this terrible thing his brother did. And and they still had his last name. The, his Their mother and stepfather wanted to change their last names um, to their stepfather's last name. And, and they were upset. They didn't want to. Like, keep in mind, the daughter's like 12. So, 12, 13 years old. Um... And then also you have to explain that your uncle Carrie did these terrible things, these these local crimes everyone's scared about and been talking about for months and months and months. It was your uncle who did it. And they're like, why'd your uncle do this? And she doesn't know her uncle like that. Like, I don't know. As for Carrie, he says that he had visions of killing women since she was seven years old. And not just visions, fantasies, like enjoying it. Not just like it happened, but enjoying it. Keep in mind, he was 10 or 11 when Stephen went missing. So this is well before. Um, He also said that the media intensity of Stephen's story was hard on him. Like, he was always considered the other son. Like, that people didn't care about him. And, and, like, he was getting in trouble constantly. That when Stephen was gone, his family was so sad and broken. And when he came back, it seemed like everything was all about Stephen at all times. Um... In fact, like I said, he got in a lot of trouble. And in fact, the night they came to tell his mother that they'd found Stephen, the the cops said it's about your son. And the... The mother was like, Carrie? (laughs) Because she... And she's used to hearing shit about Carrie. And he was camping or something. The sister, at one point, says that she believes Carrie had diminished capacity... Um, in some way. She was very vague about that. So there's nothing else to talk about that, but she believes that something is wrong with Carrie's brain. And also, Carrie says he was molested by one of his favorite, his favorite uncles around the time that Stephen went missing. Um, in fact, so Stephen dies the night before the Emmys and very soon after, like Carrie's living with that uncle as an adult and he dies in a motorcycle accident. And when they started telling me this, I was like, have y'all checked to make sure Carrie didn't kill Steven? Are y'all, have y'all checked? He had, and didn't kill his uncle in these fucking motorcycle accidents? But I'm assuming people have checked these things. It's just like, it's just one of those things where you're like, this feels like too coincidental. Um, He tries to plead insane. He has been, like over the years, he's been diagnosed with OCD and is it trichomania? It's the one where you pull your hair out. Um, that's the OCD. It's, it's not OCD and trichomania or whatever it's called. It's OCD slash trichomania because like pulling your hair out is an, it's, it can be one of the obsessive compulsions you have with OCD. Again, it is nothing like the show Monk at all, but, um, that he's been diagnosed with that and tried to get help with that and that. They also use the fact that he tried to request uh, child sexual assault materials during, in exchange for his confession. Um, but listen, he was found sane. 
He was found sane. And he eventually pleaded guilty to a variety of charges and was given a death penalty. And to this day, he is still in San Quentin on death row. So the doc, three, it's too long, guys. I, I, overall, it's too long. I think everything's too long. I think I think uh, episodes two and three were much stronger than me. And that might be because I already knew the story, right? I wanted to hear more about the making of the movie and what happened essentially after the movie left off. The movie left off with him, like, you know, as a teenager. I wanted to hear more about that. But the truth is he died very young, so it wasn't much after that. Sure, his mother talked a lot about him being a great father and his mother and his widow talked a lot about him being a great father and things like that, but he only had a couple years and it's like the way people talk about John F. Kennedy. Or they're like, he was this, he was that. It was like, all right, we were just getting started. We actually don't know what would have happened. Um, and I'm not trying to take away from Stephen Stainer's uh, memory or anything. I'm just saying that like, he died so young that what people were talking about mostly was potential of what was going to happen next. And there's... His mother's saying right there in the last, in the next four to five years after he came back, until he was an adult, essentially, until he was 18, that he was a rabble rouser and things happened and he, they're talking about all the drugs he was on and everything. But acting as if that would, that would have just stopped because he got married and had two kids was like interesting. Um, I wonder what Steven's story would be if he was still alive today. I actually think talk for obvious reasons, they can't talk to Steven. I actually think not being able to talk to Steven hurt the case, um, hurt the doc. I wonder if they asked to talk to Carrie. I'm not sure. Um, but overall, I enjoyed it. I would say that if the, something like this interests you, that's fine. If not, this podcast was enough. Uh, next week, we're going to have Liz on. I'm, in real time, I'm going to record over her tomorrow. So that's how I know next week she'll be here. And uh, we're going to get into Vanderpump Rules. We're going to talk about the Stasis and the Jacks of it all. And I am going to try to look deeper than what I saw the first time and see if I can answer some questions for myself and for you guys too. Until then, later. Later.